you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn this evening to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Luke, chapter 8. We begin again in our series through the Gospel of Luke, as we have been doing for two years now. Is that right? <laughs> doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> but here we are. And well, Scripture gives many warnings in terms of the brevity of life, how quickly it passes. It's like a weaver's shuttle. It's like a ship that's sailed. It's like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away. It's like the span of her hand. There are many others. Our lives are brief and passing on so quickly. But we have been going through this gospel, endeavoring to uh, glean from it and learn from it to the profit of our souls. And I have just one text that I want us to consider. It's verse 40, but we will read from verse 26 again. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. That leads up to the text that we want to ponder over this evening as the Lord will give us help. I should just say before I read, um, <laughs> someone met me at the door this, this morning and said, I think you said uh, Macedonia when you meant, uh, uh, mine's just gone blank again, Mesopotamia. And uh, I said, did I say Macedonia? And he said, yes, twice you said it. And uh, I was reminded of one of our preachers that went through an entire sermon on Noah, and, uh, or pardon me, on Jonah, and he kept referring to uh, Noah and the whale. And the entire sermon, he, he had it in his head, Noah and the whale. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you know what you're trying to say, but <laughs> another word comes out entirely. So for those of you who are sharp in your ancient geography, I was... Meaning Mesopotamia, not Macedonia, when I made reference to that this morning. But Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And it was there and heard of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. And then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he was possessed of the devils, uh, he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. Amen. May the Lord bless his word and ever give us ready hearts to receive it. Let's pray again just before we give consideration to 
the Word of God. Lord, we are often at the best of times stammering men, and yet it has pleased Thee to use men, even that by the foolishness of preaching men would be saved. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Lord, I pray that this year would hold in it more preaching, more preaching of Christ, more testifying of His goodness, more pointing to Him, more encouragement for sinners to believe on Him. Open up those doors of opportunity for us all. May this be a great year of sharing Christ and what He's able to do. And may it be even, O God, make it to be a reaping year, a year not only of sowing, but a year of reaping and seeing the wonders of the working of Thy Spirit. Blessed God, even this night, help us. Give help in the hearing, help in the preaching. Fill us with the Holy Ghost and make this a message fit for the season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure many of you have had the experience of trying to share the gospel and having put before you just this this hindrance, this barrier where the individual will flat out reject your effort to talk to them about the things of God. There are, of course, those who will listen, those who will show interest, or at least those who will give you the time of day. I well remember about a year before my conversion that in the providence of God, two men from the very church to which I was to belong, Balamani Free Presbyterian Church, two men who were doing outreach, door-to-door evangelism, arrived on the door of our home. And my mom, I'm not sure, sure exactly how she knew, but she knew who it was, not the individuals, but she knew why they were there. And she sent me to the door. You go <laughs> and answer that door. So I went and answered the door. These two men that a year from that moment, roughly, I was to get to know fairly well. And they, they, I answered the door and they told me who they were, why they were there, what church they were from. And of course, it triggered in my mind, that's Granny's church. <laughs> I better be on my best behavior. <laughs> Otherwise, it will get to Granny's ears. And so being, you know, honoring our grandparents just as well as our parents, I stood there. And those men, for about an hour, preached to me the gospel, opened up the scripture, and I had no interest. I had no concern. I had no sense of conviction. I had not one inkling to... Uh, hear what they had to say, yet I was polite and I listened to them. So you get that. You do get that on occasion. You think, I, I had a really good conversation, but deep down that person isn't really thinking much in the way of it being positive. There wasn't any real sincere interest in what was being said. And yet, yet, let us not be discouraged. This sowing of the seed can still be used, and I don't think it an accident. I don't think it an accident. A number of months later, my mother was converted. She could hear everything that was being said at the door. And she was converted a few months later. And then, as I say, probably around a year or less than a year from that time, I too was brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. These things are not accidents. This is the mysterious working of the Lord, even preparing the ground. For that's what the Lord does. Never miss that when you read John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. Never miss that amidst all of her sin, amidst all of the waywardness of her life, that she, someone had told her, we know that Messiah cometh. She knew that much. Someone had planted a seed. Someone had spoken sufficient. So she was aware there's someone that we're waiting for. And of course, whenever she went back into the town, Come see a man that told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? They knew as well. Someone had been sowing the seed. They never saw the harvest. They never enjoyed the reaping that was enjoyed on that occasion in John chapter 4. But that harvest was to come in the Lord's time. 
So never be too discouraged, even if there doesn't appear to be those great interest or immediate response to the Word. But it is difficult when people flat out reject what we have to say, where they don't even allow us the opportunity to plant the seed. But while that may be difficult for us to bear, that they would reject the message that we're trying to bring to them, what is far more difficult to bear on a personal level is when the person not only rejects your message, but you. They want nothing to do with you. That's what our Lord Jesus faced throughout His ministry. It was prophesied of Him that He was despised and rejected of men. And that was His experience. Not just the message, but He Himself was despised. He Himself was rejected of men. We read in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came on to His own, and His own received Him not. And verse 10 is written in such a way where I imagine John is writing it with a sense of amazement. I can't say for sure, but there is the possibility of a sense of amazement as John, under inspiration, is putting down these words, He was in the world, the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. That's the kind of line where you imagine he would, he would write that and then just stop. How can it be? How did it come to pass that he who made the world was in the world, and yet the world didn't know him? That the maker of the world would not be recognized and loved by the world. This, of course, speaks of his divinity. The one who made the world is rejected by that same world. But he goes on then to make it even more painful in terms of the human experience of our Lord Jesus Christ because he was rejected not only as God who made the world, but as man. Verse 11, he came on to his own, and his own received him not. He came as a man, as a Jew, as an Israelite, as one of the line, came into that line among that people and was rejected by them. Yes, not known as God by the world that He made, and rejected by the very ones that in His humanity He was affiliated and associated with. I see the holy angels standing aghast. I see them observing man with a sense of horror and frightened amazement. How can it be? How is it possible? How can it be that the one who made the world, the one we spend our energy worshiping, praising at His bidding call with glad delight, how can it be that these creatures of the dust would reject Him, deny Him, turn away from Him, have no time for Him? But what is interesting about the passage that we have been dealing with and it's a number of weeks back now is that as the Lord traveled from the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee to the more Gentile region, that it was there that He was to be rejected. Yes, there's the conversion of the man that we've considered, the man that was demon-possessed. But largely, there was this rejection, this, this desire for Him to leave. We read in verse 37, the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. Get out of here. We don't want you here. And on the flip side, in verse 40, when he returns to the other side of the sea, we read, it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. These are the Jews. And so the question arises, in my mind, as it may in yours, well, isn't that the opposite of what you've just said? Is that not in contradiction to what John declared, that he came onto his own and his own received him not? We're reading here the passage where the Gentiles reject him, the Jews receive him gladly. What is going on here? Is John incorrect? Is the prophecy that he would be despised and rejected of men, especially with particular application to Israel. Is that wrong? Did Isaiah get it wrong? 
You're well aware, no doubt, that many people in our days show appreciation or show a measure of appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ and yet aren't necessarily sincere in that appreciation. And make no mistake, if you're not aware of it, a large number of people that identify with the Christian label have little regard for the Christ of Scripture. They have invented a Christ of their own imagination. It is Christ on their own terms, which is very easy to do. I hope it's not true of anyone here. It's very easy, very, very easy to take the Lord Jesus Christ and manipulate Him as if He's made of some kind of moldable uh, substance, and you make Him out to be the kind of Jesus Christ you want Him to be, rather than the one He is revealed to be in the Scripture. Such are like those in, that are recorded in John chapter 2, at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, after He turns water into wine. And we are told in John 2 verse 23, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. So they saw the miracles, they believe. And verse 24 continues, But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them, because He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. And when you read it in the original, it becomes much more clear that as they believed on Him, He did not believe on them. And the reason he didn't believe on them was because he knew what was in man. In other words, the Lord Jesus perceived the shallowness of their belief, that it wasn't, it wasn't a sincere desire and love for him. It wasn't a commitment. It wasn't a recognition of him as Lord and a, the approach of a servant bowing before the master and on his terms accepting everything. You see, the Lord Jesus warned people that if you're going to follow me, let it be like the man who's preparing himself to go to battle, who will, who will look whether or not he can actually win the battle, or the man who's about to build a tower, and he will look to see, does he have the resources to finish the job? In other words, he counts the cost, he considers the expense, and is he willing to lay that all out? Does he have it all there? And so it is in following Christ. Are you prepared to give everything in the following of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as John records at the beginning of Christ's ministry, they believed in His name. Sounds very positive. But He did not commit Himself to them. He didn't believe on them. So what do we make of the crowd in verse 40? How do we understand them? Which is the single text that we will consider this evening. It came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. I can't get into specifics. I can't tell you the precise number of people there. Certainly, it would appear to be extending from the great multitude that were already following him previous to this. So there's a large number of people. And I can't give you their names. I can't tell you how devout they were and so on. But there are a number of reasons, two specifically that I'll deal with here before we proceed, that would cause us not to be optimistic about the language of verse 40, that it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received Him, for they were all waiting for Him. First, we should be suspicious of those from Capernaum. So in this crowd, no doubt, in the region of Capernaum, there were those who were from Capernaum. And Jesus would say of them in Matthew 11, verse 23 and 24, Thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. So Jesus outlines in Matthew 11 very clearly that people from the region of Capernaum have been unusually blessed, and yet they have had hard hearts, that by and large there has been no submission, no genuine appreciation for Jesus Christ, no real discipleship exhibited by their lives. That would, that would be the first reason to be concerned about these people. Second, we should be suspicious of the crowds that gathered around Capernaum. Not just the ones from Capernaum, but the crowds that gathered in the region. In the next chapter, we're told of the feeding of the 5,000. We'll get there in due course. 
And John records in detail what happens following that miracle. We're told in John 6, verse 24, that those of those that, quote, came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So they're coming to this region. Verse 24, And Jesus says to them, Ye also have seen me, and believe not. You've seen me, but you don't believe. Verse 36 of that chapter. And they never came to believe. They left that day not believing in him. So while I can't be specific about the crowd that was there, exactly the number, the people, and how they received the Lord Jesus Christ, given the entire context, I look at verse 40 with a measure of suspicion. Because we have scriptural warrant to realize, to be aware of the fact that there were people that gladly received the Lord, and yet there was something amiss in their hearts. And we have just come out, if you can remember back far enough, come out of the Lord Jesus standing, dealing with these people, speaking to these people, the very parable that would warn them of a wrong receiving of Him. Go back to the earlier part of the chapter, the parable of the seed. And we are told that those in verse 13, they on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy. So there's an element of joy. There's expression of joy and appreciation when they hear the Word, or we might say when they see the Lord Jesus Christ, when they discern what He has to say, there, there is a reception, a joyful reception. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. That is the reality, outlined clearly by Christ. And so prior to verse 40, I would say a good number of the very crowd that are receiving Him gladly are exhibiting joy that may, that may just be the very same joy He spoke of in verse 13. This is all a warning to us. A warning to us all. But I don't want to dwell too much. We'll have some other things to say on this. I don't want to dwell too much on the warning of this. I want to take the text at face value in terms of how it is put before us in verse 40, when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And as we commence this year, we might, I trust with profit, consider from this text the subject, welcoming Jesus, welcoming Jesus. Note with me, first of all, their patience, their patience. When Jesus was returned, again, you remember what happened. Christ had been teaching by the Sea of Galilee, there he taught this great parable that we have already looked at, one of the most important parables, the parable of the sower. And a huge crowd heard him that day. In fact, Mark tells us there were a great multitude. And I understand that among that great multitude are those that have returned. Those that were there and heard it have come back and are looking for the Lord Jesus with patience to return to their shores. And so as the Lord Jesus comes back, as he comes back their way, this expression of them waiting for Him, that Jesus returned, and there was this patience that is exhibited as they stand on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, waiting for Him to return, that, as I say, is instructive for us. This kind of patience needs to be exhibited by all of us in various ways. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, said, there are no sins God's people are more subject to than unbelief and impatience. They are ready either to faint through unbelief or to fret through impatience. I think that's a perceptive observation, that the greatest sins of the believer will fall on unbelief and impatience. We're just not ready to wait. But here we have put before us, and I think for our instruction tonight we should consider it, they're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an example, first of all, for a praying saint. A praying saint should be able to find himself in similar language, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, for him to come, illustrating the need for patience in prayer. E.M. Bounds said, I think Christians feel so often to get answers to their prayers because they do not wait long enough on God. They just drop down and say a few words and then jump up and forget it and expect God to answer them. Such praying always reminds me of the small boy ringing his neighbor's doorbell and then running away as fast as he can go. That's the way some of us pray. There's no patience. There's no waiting. 
There's no looking for Christ to return to our shores. This abiding patience, looking for Christ to come as we wait on Him, as we put before Him our prayers and our desires. David recorded in Psalm 40 verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. I waited patiently. Sometimes we're inclined to think that the Lord wants us to wait with an impatience, that we're going to demand things from the Lord. We just need to demand it more fervently, more resolutely. We're going to tell God what to do. The man who knew that God heard his cry, who knew that God inclined unto him, said that the way that led to that, the path that was trod for God to incline to him and hear him, was a result of him waiting patiently. I waited patiently for the Lord. Something wonderfully instructive in that posture and attitude. It's so easy for agitation to settle into the heart. I mean, we are so comfortable today that I think many of the prayers that we offer, we don't even really care whether they're answered or not. We have no sense of urgency and burden. It's very difficult for us to put ourselves in the position that we're wondering where our next meal is going to come from. And the urgency, therefore, the, the, the humility, the, the waiting that there is before God when you're, when you're praying, Lord, bring the bread. And this could be multiplied across all the needs that may be experienced throughout the experience of humanity that so few of them are really felt by us. So there is no real need to wait for God. We can get by with all that we have. On the flip side, of course, there can be those seasons of burden, of concern. It's like one thing, like an anvil crushing us. Sometimes we we get agitated and impatient. But when we wait patiently for the Lord, when we are looking for His return, when as in prayer, it may be said, it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, that there we are, we're, we're waiting on Him. We're waiting for Him to come by. He's been there before. And we're waiting for Him to return, to come to us, to meet with us, as we wait for Him in prayer. This is how our lives should be this year, that we should go to our closets and our closets should be places where the Lord comes by. And every time we go to our closets, we go there and we shut the door waiting for Jesus to return. Even to frame prayer that way. I'm going to wait for Jesus to return. He's coming, you know. He's coming to meet with me this morning. He's going to come by. He's going to come and comfort my heart. Meet with my soul. Encourage me and cheer me, strengthen me, bless me. So I'm going to go away because Jesus is passing this way. He's going to come by. He's going to return. Oh, how few, how few of us have a testimony of prayer like that. That would be a good thing to develop this year, wouldn't it? It's not only an example for a praying saint. It's an example for a suffering saint. Saints suffer. Some of you, if you were to give a synopsis of the past year, it would include some of the events of your suffering. Certainly, if you were to be honest. Loneliness. Physical affliction. Learning to care for a loved one. 
the loss of a loved one. And this suffering will not stop while we continue in this world. It's not going to go away. We can't pause it. We can't halt it. We can't buy our way out of it. Suffering will come. And all that we would deal with it, all that we would be instructed by this, knowing that even in our sufferings, as we step from one period of suffering into another, that Jesus will return. That as He was with me in the furnace before, so He will be with me again. This same Lord Jesus that you have seen in this manner shall so come again. He comes by to embolden and encourage the suffering saint so that they bear their suffering with joy in an inexplicable fashion. Yes, the hymn writer put it, What though all my earthly journey bringeth naught but weary hours, and in grasping for life's roses, thorns I find instead of flowers. If I've Jesus, Jesus only, I possess a cluster rare. He's the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon fair. And so in our suffering, if we could just have this waiting for the Lord to come by, to know that the Lord Jesus has a particular inclination and empathy for those that suffer, and so when we are brought into the furnace, when we're put in the fires of affliction, when we are feeling the suffering moments to just wait because the Lord's going to come by. I'm going to see the Lord in this suffering. I'm going to see His face. He's going to comfort me. I just need to wait for Him. I need to be in the shores of each morning waiting for the Lord to come and comfort and help me as I face this new trial. This perspective of suffering, this ability to see the glory of the Lord in suffering resulted in a most stunning observation by Paul that is so familiar to us in Romans 8 verse 18. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I mean, you could mine, you could mine there, you could just pause there and dig there for a long time to try and understand and apply the truth of His experience that can be experienced and real for every other Christian as well. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, I have come to the conviction, it has been my observation, it has been my experience that all the sufferings all the sufferings, whether we are forsaken, whether we are beaten, whether we are afflicted, whether we have our, our lives threatened, whatever comes our way, I don't care what it is. So far, my experience has been this, that the sufferings of this present time, all that this world and the devil can throw at me, all of it, it doesn't matter what it is, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How can he say that? Except his mind is always not on the suffering itself, but on the Christ of God. What is heaven? But at least in one sense, it is the manifestation, the full unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul managed his sufferings, went through his sufferings, stood steadfast in his sufferings by continually looking on Christ. And that, that, in one sense, was like a numbing agent to the sufferings of life. Because he saw the glory of Christ in this life and anticipated even greater glory once he would depart from this scene. For every Christian, heaven awaits with Christ and without suffering. But the only way to add a sense of joy in our suffering is to wait for Christ while we endure the suffering of this present time. When Jesus was returned, He'll come to me again in the night watch, amid my sobs, he'll be there, 
when no one else sees the tear, where no one else hears the prayer. Jesus will return. It's been true throughout the ages, Christian. In your sufferings, Jesus will be found. So don't focus on the suffering. Focus focus on the horizon. Look over the Sea of Galilee. Wait, he's coming. He's returning. I just want to see it. Look, there it is. There's the ship. I can't yet see a figure, but I believe, I hope that he is on that ship and he is coming. He's coming back. It's going to come and comfort me. Yes. So we wait on him. This is patience. Amidst their suffering. Again, another Puritan, an English Puritan, Stephen Charnock, wrote, In regard of God, patience is a submission to his sovereignty. To endure a trial simply because we cannot avoid or resist it is not Christian patience. But to humbly submit because it is the will of God to inflict the trial, to be silent because the sovereignty of God orders it, is true godly patience. So I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting the circumstances. I'm not telling God that he's mistreating me, bringing complaints against the Most High. I want it to be said of me what was said of Job and all this. Job, sin not with his tongue, nor charge God foolishly. And so... Upon what will I gaze in my suffering? I again, I will look for him to return patiently. I will wait in the assurance he will come by. Thirdly, this is an example for a dying saint. It's an example for a dying saint. This year may be a year of departure for some of us. How are we to know? How are any of us to know? We sang on Wednesday evening the words of another year is dawning. And it closes with the words, Another year is dawning, dear Father, let it be, on earth or else in heaven, another year for thee. It could be on earth. It could be in heaven. Are you ready? Are you ready to traverse the valley of the shadow of death? Do you know what it is to be in those shadows, to ponder what that might be like and prepare yourself to just wait for Jesus to come by and be with you? That may be what this year holds for some of us. This is outside of our control. But let us stand on the shore should that day come. Be assured that Jesus is coming by. I wait patiently for him to come to my soul each day. So we have seen their patience. Secondly, note their anticipation. Their anticipation. For they were all waiting for him. They were all waiting for him. A sense of anticipation here. They expected the Lord to return the way he had gone. So they're anticipating his return Not just exhibiting patience, but in that patience there's an anticipation. Surely he will come. Surely it will be so. Of course he will come. As I say, I do not know all the motivations of their gathering and how true they were. Which of them truly knew the Lord and which of them did not. But this is what is recorded. They were all waiting for him. They were all waiting for him. That's a good place to be. To me, be among those who are all waiting for the Lord. That's what we are reminded of every time we take the Lord's Supper. So we do this in remembrance of Him. And we do it until He comes. 
It's put there, right there in the text. Now we keep doing this until he comes. He is coming. He is coming back. It doesn't detail the resurrection, but the resurrection is assumed there. We see his death signified in the bread and the cup. But then we do this till he comes because he is a risen king. He's coming back. And so when we sit at the table, we are, we are indicating, we're awaiting people, anticipating his return. Do we want him to return? Are we ready for him to return? Have we done all that we could do up to this point with our lives? Oh, I know, none of us have done everything we could do. But is there a measure of effort in that regard? Is there an, an element in which I am trying, according to my strength and the grace that God has given and the gifts bestowed upon me, I am endeavoring to do at least something with that for the Lord? A couple of things to note here. First, when anticipation leads to disappointment. When anticipation leads to disappointment. It can be very easy to stand and wait waiting for the Lord to come and yet be disappointed. To be left disappointed because the Lord doesn't come as you imagined He would come. And that occurred for some people, you know. I turn for a moment to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. There was throughout the vast majority of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, a desire to see him dead. And if we were even to constrain our remarks just to John's gospel, we know that at least from John chapter 5, there is exhibited this desire to see him dead. And so this, this, this continues throughout his ministry, this desire, he, he must be dead. And, and yet, amidst all of this, there's this assumption he's going to be there, he's always going to be there. And in John 11, we'll read from verse... Oh, read from verse 47 just to get the context of what's happening here because we're leading up to the cross. And it says, When then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. And this was bothering them, of course. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. <laughs> See, that's the real problem. <laughs> uh, don't upset the apple cart. Don't, don't stop the gravy train. We have something good going on here. Don't let him come and upset it. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Let me just pause there. Caiaphas makes a prophecy, and Caiaphas knows nothing of Christ himself, personally. So when you look at the broad spectrum of Christianity, and you see these people who say a lot of good things about the Lord Jesus, and you say, surely they must be really the Lord's. They must really know the Lord, because they say many good things. Well, remember Caiaphas. You can say a lot right about the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the heart is wicked. And your TVs are full of them. The evangelists that, by and large, take up the time on television these days. But anyway, going back to the text, it says in verse 53, From that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. So here they're desire, they're anticipating they're going to find him and going to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews. But went thence into a country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, there continued with his disciples. And you read that text, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews. Who is in sovereign control in terms of where Jesus is going to be next? It is Jesus. And I've read that text at times and pondered. In fact, just this past week, I was considering that text and pondering that verse, which is why it came to mind. And I thought, you know, that, that can be said. That we can have an anticipation, an expectation, a thought that Jesus Christ will be here, and yet all of a sudden, He can decide no more to walk openly among you. That churches can experience that, just as the ancient church, Israel, experienced that for a season. Jesus says, decides 
makes a decision, no more am I going to walk openly. I'm going to hide myself, and you're not going to find me. The only way you'll find me is whenever I bring myself out again. When I come, step before you, when the time is ready, that the will of the Father be done. That's frightening, actually. It's frightening to think that Jesus Christ can just hide himself, can leave people disappointed. We think we can find him whenever we want. That's not always the case. That was the warning, of course, to the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, wasn't it? So many of the churches were trifling, messing around in their religious experience that he is writing letters to them, warning them, you better, you better repent. Because your assumption is that I'll always be there. I'll always be in your presence. I'll always be endeavoring to bless you, encourage you, walk with you, provide for you, protect you, and all the rest of it. Your assumption is I'll always be there. And these churches went on for years. And this is first century churches. These are first century churches in Asia Minor. Many of them could look back to the preaching of the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and others. They, they had known these mighty preachers in their midst. They had a great heritage. And yet they were getting to a point whenever they were having to be warned, if you do not repent, you're not going to have me in your midst anymore. You're going to be like the very people that crucified me. I removed myself from them. My presence is not known by them. The same is going to happen to you. I can't read Revelation 2 and 3 without being humbled to the core. After all Jesus said through his ministry, everything that he said, all that he did, all the words of warning, all the words of encouragement, all of it, take it all. Perhaps particularly we would look at John 14, 15, 16 and 17. We look at that. I say, what encouragement, what richness, what blessing. How favored we are. We are a favored people. And yet, to people... (laughs) who were favored. He has to send word from heaven so that the last message really to the church from the risen Christ that is given revelation, the last message is repent. So there may be some of us waiting for the Lord and we will be disappointed. We think the Lord's always going to be there. He's going to come to us. We're all waiting for him. Was that not the case for the, for five, the five foolish virgins? They're waiting with the other five. They're waiting. They're there. They're among the crowd, anticipating his return, but there's no oil in their lamps. It's a warning. We may be greatly disappointed. So we run off to get the oil and we come back, but it's too late. All the apparent waiting has been in vain. But we must consider not only when anticipation leads to disappointment, but when anticipation leads to enjoyment. Anticipation also can lead to enjoyment. Wonderful enjoyment. And for this I consider... Again, the psalmist, this time Psalm 63. And I was pondering over the language of this psalm in relation to this hopeful anticipation that also may be real in the experience of the believer. Psalm 63. David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, David, when he was by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, we might say. David looking for the Lord to come while he stands in the wilderness. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. 
Oh, that's the key, isn't it? That's the key. You don't just seek the Lord when you want. You seek the Lord early. That means you should have sought the Lord years ago. You should have already sought Him. Sought Him for salvation. Sought Him in repentance. Sought Him confessing your sins. You should seek the Lord early. That's the way to seek Him, as early as possible. Children, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Do not go years drifting, thinking you can ignore the God of heaven and there be no consequences. Say with David. David, who, who trusted God on his mother's breast. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. I'm still waiting, Lord. I'm looking for power, looking for deliverance, looking for you, Lord, as I have seen you before. And why is he looking for God? Why? Why look for God? Because thy loving kindness is better than life. It's better than life. <laughs> if you're not saved, you have no idea. You don't get this. You read this and you think, what? How can that be? Well, it is. It is. Of course it is. Of course the giver of life is better than the life itself. Just like you don't prize, ladies, you don't prize the engagement ring more than you prize the one who gave it, I trust. Your affections toward them. And when gifts are given and exchanged, as they have been in recent weeks among you, I am sure, you don't just look at the gift and say, I love this more than I like you. I hope not. And so that David understands this. Thy loving kindness is better than life. You, Lord, are better than life. Life is just something you've given. It's a blessing. I'm thankful for it. But you, your mercies, who you are, what you do for me, it's better than life. All your mercy is bestowed upon me, a sinner, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. That's how I'm going to spend my life. I'm going to bless God while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches because thou hast been my help. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. Yes, my soul's running after you, Lord. That's anticipation. I'll get to the Lord. I'm running after the Lord. Running after God. That's a good motto for 2021, isn't it? To be able to come to the end of this year and say, my soul followed hard after God. For the first time in my life, maybe. I got serious. Not just about reading my Bible and praying, but about meeting with God, following after God in the Word. Where's the Lord in the Word? Beloved, when you do your reading, listen to me, when you read the Scriptures this year, whatever your plan, whatever you're reading, whether it's half a chapter, a chapter, four chapters, ten chapters, whatever your reading plan this year, take time. When you come to the end of the chapter, if not before, but when you come to the end of the chapter, make sure there's something you have gleaned that you can pray back to God. That, Lord, help me here in this, make this real in my life. That's following after God. That's reading His Word and looking for it to be imbibed into your soul. So on it goes on. It goes on. So this, this psalm, this, this, this expresses the anticipation that leads to enjoyment. This is a man who has known God and has rejoiced and is looking for more. So as he stands there in the desert of his present circumstances, his soul thirsts for God. His flesh longs for God. He wants just to see God. So what are you after this year? What could be the best thing that could happen to you in 2021? 
oh, I'm sure you have your ambitions, your desires, the prayers that you offer to God, and I'm sure I trust they are legitimate. But, but let it be that should none of those things come to pass. That you've sought God and you've found Him. This is what we need in this church. We need a revival of basic, fundamental yearning after God. Looking for Him. Finally, let's see their gladness. Going back to the portion, their gladness. The people gladly received Him. Though gladly is in italics, that's the sense of the text. It's rightly put there because that's the sense of, of the original. The people gladly received him. There was a joy in their reception. And this is a good way, isn't it, to receive the Lord? Just like the psalmist, it's with gladness. Okay, there's a sense of when he's around, there's reason for joy. But for many of these people, it was about what they could get out of him, not him. They were showing gladness simply because of what he could offer. And he could offer healing for their sickness and sight for their blind loved ones. But just to look with a, to look for him and receive him with gladness just for who he is, that's, that's what's important. Sometimes even genuine believers end up disappointed in the Lord. Remember the two in the road to Emmaus? They didn't quite, they weren't following all that the Lord was doing. And so as the Lord was right there with them, and they didn't quite know it at that point, but they lamented. You can hear the disappointment in their voice when you read it in Luke 24, 21. We trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. We trusted that that was the case. You can hear almost the, the sob of their hearts. This is what we thought. We received him gladly, and we received him gladly because we sought, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And sometimes the Lord's people are like that. They receive the Lord gladly, and then things don't go exactly as they think they should, and then they're all disappointed. Christian, don't be that way this year. Don't. Don't. The Lord is working things out perfectly. Just you understand his word. I mean, they understood it. They understood. They understood that he should redeem Israel. They got it right. They just didn't see all that was transpiring and so on and so forth. They were sent to learn, however. So again, this comes back to patience, doesn't it? Whenever we read the word, and this is what the Lord has said, so I'm going to patiently wait and gladly anticipate that he will bring this to pass. But, but the great gladness, the most wonderful gladness in terms of receiving Him, and this is how you should begin this year, if you cannot already testify to this, this is how you begin this year. The people gladly received Him. You know the most glad way to receive the Lord? It is in salvation. It is in the forgiveness of your sins. That is the most glad way to receive Him. So, Throughout the Psalms, you find this expressed, such as in Psalm 20, verse 5, we will rejoice in thy salvation. That's what's going to make us glad. Whatever else is going on, we're going to rejoice in thy salvation. And that can be your testimony this year, child of God. Whatever you face, whatever goes on, just declare it. I'm going to rejoice in the salvation of God. But you can't do that if you have not already come to Christ, had your sins forgiven, understood that there upon the cross at Calvary, Jesus, the Son of God, is bearing your sins, that He is suffering the wrath you deserve for your rebellion against God. He is being made sin for you, even though He Himself, in His life, He knew no sin, never committed any sin, but He has made sin. He suffers as if he did every guilty thing you've done. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might obtain the righteousness that is needed before God and only available 
in Jesus Christ. So we read a wonderful text in Isaiah 25, verse 9. It shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. That's, that's how you wait on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. That's how you wait in life for the Lord. You look and you say, Lo, this is our God. This is our God. Christian, that's what you say to the world. This is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's a good text, isn't it? Isn't that the testimony of the believer? That's what's going to be said in that day, this day. That's what's going to be said. This is what we say. This is our God. This is our God. We gladly receive him. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We will be glad. We will. We will be glad. I will be glad this year. Christian, be glad this year. Receive him with gladness. Live in gladness. Experience the glad tidings of your sins forgiven, of pardon and peace with God, of adoption into the family of God, of assurance of a place in heaven with God. These things are forever settled. They can't be taken from you. Jesus Christ shed his blood to guarantee them. He is the surety for us. He has made it come to pass. It has been gifted to us. Eternal life. We will never perish. None can pluck us out of the Father's hand. So we with gladness receive him. The people gladly received him. I hope that can be said of this church. I hope, looking here, (laughs) hypothetically, not in the Sea of Galilee, in the shores, but across this congregation, it can be said, the people gladly received him. They gladly received him. In sincerity. Not like some of the hypocrites and the half-hearted that were there, no doubt. No, let it be in sincerity. Let it be with a humble heart. Let it be with a recognition that I'm a guilty, rotten, hell-deserving sinner, but here comes, here comes the Redeemer of God's elect. Here comes the Savior of sinners. Here comes the Lamb of God for me. Oh, we don't want to be like the hypocrites found in their number. We don't. I close with the words of Samuel Rutherford who gave great warning in regard to this matter that may be true of many that were there that day on that shore. Such positive language and yet it would seem to me from the context many of them the root of the matter was not there. So Rutherford dealing with this very thing many years ago he says remember that many go far on and reform many things and can find tears as Esau did and suffer hunger for truth as Judas did, and wish and desire the end of the righteous as Balaam did, and profess fair and fight for the Lord as Saul did, and desire the saints of God to pray for them as Pharaoh and Simon Magus did, and prophesy and speak of Christ as Caiaphas did, and walk softly and mourn for fear of judgments as Ahab did, and put away gross sins and idolatry as Jehu did, and hear the word of God gladly and reform their life in many things according to the word as Herod did, and say to Christ, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest as the man who offered to be Christ's servant did. And many may taste of the virtues of the life to come and be partaker of the wonderful gifts of the Holy Ghost and taste of the good word of God as did the apostates who sin against the Holy Ghost. And yet all these are but like gold and clink and color, watered brass and base metal. These are written that we should try ourselves and not rest till we be a step nearer Christ than sunburnt and withering professors can come. We need to get closer to Him. We need to get closer to the Lord than the false professors can ever get. A true welcome for Jesus. A true embracing of the Son of God. A true recognition that He is everything. 
He is everything. If everything I treasure be taken from me this year, but I have Jesus, I will still consider myself blessed more than I deserve and rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's what real conversion does. Takes you beyond the happy-go-lucky, fair-weather Christianity to a real heartfelt appreciation that He is everything to those for whom He has died. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. I encourage you to bow your head before God. To shut out all the distractions and to take these moments to think seriously about where you stand before God tonight. Can you say you're saved? Can you say you love the Lord? Can you identify with this kind of thirst and interest in Jesus Christ? An interest that goes beyond an hour or two on a Sunday? Can you say it now? What work has been done in your life? What evidence is there that you're a Christian? Have you known, have you known rather, the transforming influence of the Spirit on your life? That's our desire. That's my prayer for you. That you may seek the Lord. And you may do so right where you are. If you need any help, be sure to let me know. I'll be glad to open the Word of God with you. Answer your questions. Point you to Christ. Lord, we commit thy word to thee. It is thy word. It is an eternal word. It is forever settled in heaven. I pray that our meditation on thy word this evening will be received with profit to the soul. And especially for those that without Christ, I ask Thee, O God, to awaken darkened hearts and blinded sinners. God, we have been there. We know what it's like. We know what it's like to fight, to kick against the pricks, to try and run, to run away from the sense of conviction. Lord, I pray, stop. Stop those who want to run. Bring them to their knees. Save their precious never dying souls. Do this work this night and continue, O God, to bless us throughout this year as I and others perhaps on given occasions will stand in this pulpit. May Christ be preached in all his fullness and may multitudes be brought to see him, trust him, and serve him. Be with all those who make their way home those that go downstairs for fellowship. Bless the food provided and nourish us on more than the mere physical. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.